Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Such a change in a man of so much pride excited not only astonishment, but gratitude. For to love... Ardent love, it must be attributed. Austin describes it as preservative from want. And it's actually a very astute observation of economic determinants driving social action. How amazing to think that these novels all started on that surface. She knows there's life if you don't marry at 27. She knows there are other choices if you're lucky enough to be able to follow them. Absolutely, you've got both this dancing, flirting Austin that is out every night to balls and when she's in her early 20s, and then a more mature woman who is focused on her craft. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That, of course, is the famous opening sentence of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice has always been the most loved of all Austen's love stories, both among her own family, who were its first audience, and among the legions of Austenolators who had emerged by the 1880s, the precursors of today's Janeites, who attend costume teas, balls, and Austen-themed conferences around the world. When Pride and Prejudice was first published in 1813, the playwright Richard Sheridan advised a friend to buy it immediately, for it was one of the cleverest things he had ever read. Walter Scott read it three times, and the Prince Regent was so enamoured he kept a complete set of Austen novels to hand in each of his residences. In 2017, Jane Austen replaced Charles Darwin on British £10 notes. Below her face is a quotation from Pride and Prejudice, and behind her is an illustration of Elizabeth Bennet reading a book. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to adjust my Regency bonnet and Empire Line dress and prepare to visit the rooms where Jane Austen wrote Pride and Prejudice. But first, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our guest for today's episode, the novelist Monica Alley. Monica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Monica Alley is a best-selling novelist whose work has been translated into 26 languages. She has written five books, Brick Lane in 2003, which was nominated for the Man Booker Prize, the George Orwell Prize, and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. 
Alenteo Blue, In the Kitchen, Untold Story, and most recently, Love Marriage in 2022. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and in 2003, she was named one of Granter's best young British novelists. She is also a great lover of Jane Austen's novels, and she once told Elle magazine that she couldn't imagine life without her. So, Monica, why do you love Jane Austen so much? I love her for all the usual reasons, that um, she creates the most vivid, lively characters, that for her rapier-sharp wit, for her sparkling dialogue, and also... Jane Austen is the writer who actually taught me how to read, in a sense, because the first of her novels that I read was Emma, and when I finished it, I started it again. Mm. And in that second reading, I discovered so much more. There was so much fine patterning and detail in her work. So Jane Austen was... Yeah, the writer who really taught me the pleasures of a second reading, and that taught me how to read. Oh, how fantastic. Well, we're standing today in the village of Chawton in Hampshire, looking across the road at the cottage, although it's rather a large cottage, where Jane Austen lived for a large part of her life. It's a beautiful, square, red-brick building, probably about 500 years old, with lots of chimney stacks sticking out of the top and big stone plaques marking this as the site of Jane Austen's house. It's beautiful. I'd like to live here. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful? <laughs> In her biography, Claire Tomlin uh, describes the situation. She calls Chawton a, a dozy place that was startled into attention several times a day by the clatter of rapid coach traffic through its centre. It stood where three roads met, to the north, Alton and London, to the south, Winchester, if you followed one fork, and Gosport along the other. The Austin's cottage was on the corner at the Divide, so close to the road that the beds in the front rooms upstairs were sometimes shaken by the six-horse coaches that thundered past. Yeah, well, we've we've got a lot of... um thundering of gardening equipment today. <laughs> yes, yes, there's a bit of industrial gardening going on and, uh, and some buses and cars going past as well. But in a funny way, this house reminds me of the house in Pride and Prejudice, doesn't it? The house called Longbourn, where the Bennett family lives. In that novel, Longbourn House is described as the principal house in the village and it feels like this is also the the main house in this village it's the central house and the village kind of radiates away from it Longbourn is where Mr and Mrs Bennett live with their five daughters and of course the central character of Pride and Prejudice and perhaps the reason why that novel is so much loved Mm. is the character of Elizabeth Bennett Monica how would you introduce us to Lizzie in this novel? She's the second eldest daughter. She is perhaps one of the most vivid characters in the whole of English literature. She's full of deep contradictions because she prides herself on being ruled by reason and yet she often acts in haste and has deep prejudices. Um, She's Full of laughter and fun and light-heartedness, but she's also a deeply serious person. And I think all of those deep contradictions of character make her really live in your mind. 
you really feel like you know her, don't you, after you've read the novel? And, Absolutely. And uh, Jane Austen herself said that uh, she thought her as delightful a creature as ever appeared in print. And, and she is delightful. She's delightful company when you're reading the book. She, I think she's still a great favourite with readers. I mean, you mm. know, this novel is one of the cl- few classics that I think that people voluntarily, willingly <laughs> read, you know, that's not force-fed to them at school. People still love this this book. And that is... I think, not wholly down to Elizabeth, but I think she's the the one who um, is the great favourite of Mm. readers. Mm. Well, let's head into Jane Austen's house and talk more about this novel. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, we've just stepped into the house, into the first room, the, the historic kitchen of the cottage. And I'm delighted to introduce the director of Jane Austen's House Museum, Lizzie Dunford. Lizzie, thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to show you around this beautiful place. And how perfect. Your name is Lizzie, because uh, we've I just know. been it's talking about Lizzie Bennett. coincidence. <laughs> it's fabulous. That is brilliant. Um, so, Lizzie, could you just tell us a little bit about what stage of Jane Austen's life she was at when she lived here? Yes. So, Jane Austen lived here for the last eight years of her life. She moved in in July 1809 and lived here until just before the last six weeks of her life, until May 1817. And she's here for an absolutely crucial part of her creative and professional life. She had had a period of considerable housing uncertainty before they moved in here. So she'd left her childhood home just outside Basingstoke in 1801 and then they'd moved to Bath So her mother, her father and her sister. And then her father died in 1805. Mm. The money starts to dry up and they experience quite a lot of housing uncertainty. One of the very tragic things about the time in Bath is when Austen is first there, she writes to her sister describing a street that they absolutely do not want to move into. By the end of the time in Bath, they're living in that street. And then this house becomes available in late 1808. It's owned by her brother Edward, who is absentee landlord of Chawton, and he offers with this house a long-term security. It is for the Austen women, Jane's mother, her sister Cassandra, their family friend Martha Lloyd, who is also their sister-in-law, to be able to live here for life. And she is able to tap back into the intense creativity of her teenage years and her early 20s of Steventon where she's actively writing. So this is where every single one of the novels finds its final finished form or is completely written. So everything comes from this space. How extraordinary. There's a nice line of her niece, Anna's, who said that... uh, Jane and her sister and her mother live a very quiet life, according to our ideas, but they were great readers. And beside the housekeeping, our aunts occupy themselves in working with the poor and in teaching some girl or boy to read or write. So you get a sense of the the life they had here. You do. I would also add a caveat to that, that all of those memoirs are written in the mid-Victorian period. So they are written 50 years after their actual lived experience. And when you look through the letters and you look through the chronology, 
this house is brimming with life. They have visitors, they have nieces and nephews coming, there are guests staying. The main road outside was the main road to London and Winchester uh -huh. and they were actively connected within their community. It is not quite the retired life that the later Victorianisation would like. Austin was regularly in London and there were visitors all the time. So it was a busy, thriving house. I, I read um, that her only domestic duty was to make breakfast yes. for the family and then she was left alone to write. Absolutely. Is that, was that, that right? That is absolutely correct. She wasn't particularly domestic when it came you to see i feel things. such deep envy yes. if only that was my only domestic I know. duty that was it <laughs> they were working together this household of women they were working together to support her writing and it's fascinating when she's writing persuasion she's finishing it off and she writes one ending one denouement and how it all all comes together and how wentworth and Anne get together and cassandra is away and she actually writes in a letter to cassandra I cannot think of composition when my head is full of joints of mutton because she's I having know, to have a yes. And Cassandra oh, comes John. back and then yes. she writes the amazing, amazing white heart yes. in chapter because she is freed from she's having to worry about space. that. She's got the mental space how, to do it. How interesting. Just before we leave this room, Lizzie, how did this house end up being a museum in the end? So after... Jane died. Her mother and her sister continued living here until 1827 for her mother and her sister Cassandra died in 1845. The house was then divided up into three estate workers' cottages and it stayed like that for the best part of a hundred years. Not very well maintained, increasing form of disrepair and then after the Second World War it was put up for sale and Jane Austen Society was formed, a campaign was raised to try and save it and buy it and open it as a museum. And then a London lawyer called T. Edward Carpenter bought it and set up the Jane Austen Museum Trust, which opened in July 1949. Wow. And we've been open ever since. So 2024 is our 75th anniversary of being oh, open as Amazing, and what a tribute to the, you know, the power of her writing. And Monica, I think you in 2017, you were part of a project with Historic England to name a hundred irreplaceable places in the UK. I didn't and, name them all. <laughs> but of, the, of, the, of the ten that you selected for the music and literature category, one of them was this house. I think it's such an important piece of uh, history, not just literary history, but history as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, let's carry on into the house and carry on talking about Pride and Prejudice and Austin. The evening altogether passed off pleasantly to the whole family. Mrs Bennet had seen her eldest daughter much admired by the Netherfield party. Mr Bingley had danced with her twice and she had been distinguished by his sisters. Jane was as much gratified by this as her mother could be, though in a quieter way. Elizabeth felt Jane's pleasure. Mary had heard herself mentioned to Miss Bingley as the most accomplished girl in the neighbourhood and Catherine and Lydia had been fortunate enough to be never without partners, which was all that they had yet learnt to care for at a ball. Okay, we're just stepping through into the drawing room. Gosh, what a beautiful room. There's a fireplace, a sofa in the middle with an open book on it, a little harpsichord in the corner and beautiful wallpaper. Lizzie, did you say this was 
reproduced from the original wallpaper? It is, yes. So we have three original wallpapers in the house. This one in the drawing room, another in the dining room, which was a relatively new discovery, and another again in the family room, which is upstairs. And they transformed the house because they are not necessarily what you would expect from the Regency. They are bright, they are bold. Uh, the one in here is, is yellow, and I often describe this room as gilded. Mm. Even though there's no gold in it, we've got some, there's a few brass, relatively ordinary brass candlesticks, but that's about it. But there is something about this wallpaper that gives it such light. It's, very, it's, it's bright and lively, this mm. wallpaper. So it's yellow and red with a kind of ivy pattern weaving through it. It's fabulous. Well, Monica, we've already talked a little bit about the Bennett family in Pride and Prejudice. And in a drawing room like this, we can imagine them spread out around the room, maybe. So let's introduce more of Lizzie's family. Perhaps the most dominant member of that family is Mrs. Bennett. And she's certainly one of the most memorable characters from the novel, isn't she? How would you describe her? Well, she's a great comic creation of Austen's. Um, I think she gets a, a bit of a bad rap in some ways because on rereading, I think you have to give Mrs. Bennett her due that she is, I mean, she's a bit of a tiger mum in a way. <laughs> I mean, the, the most urgent business for her family is to get the daughters married. And of course she goes about it in a sort of, clumsy, over-eager, unsubtle way. But she is absolutely right that the only possibility for all of her daughters, it's either poverty or get married. So, um, you know, I've warmed to Mrs Bennett over the years. I have too. I completely agree. And um, Claire Tomlin makes an interesting point that, you know, Lizzie is such an active vital person. But she points out that Lizzie's vitality and Lydia's too, her younger sister, they come from Mrs. Bennet. And actually, as you say, she's being very practical in a way that Mr. Bennet is not, right? He's the kind of complete opposite. (laughs) Mr. Bennet is sardonic. He's got... I mean, you know, Lizzie gets something from him as well. Mm -hmm. They're both sharp wits. But really, he's not paying due care and attention. And he's indolent, he shrugs things off, he makes a joke, even after Lydia has her very near disaster and finally gets married off to Wickham. When he's talking about it within the family and he's talking to Kitty, uh, who is, you know, very worried that her freedoms will be curtailed. Mr. Bennett just makes a a big joke of it all and says, you know, maybe in 10 years, if you're very, very good, you might be allowed out again. So even at that point, he's not really stepping up and being the kind of father he should be. It's funny, my memory of him had been of this kind of wry, slightly amusing, deadpan character. And he is. Which he He is, is, which he is. But when you... I don't know, when I reread it recently, I was just shocked at his being so neglectful. You know, he's just not thinking about his family. Now, we've mentioned Lydia and Kitty, Lizzie's youngest sisters, and the middle sister, who is also a wonderful comic creation, is Mary, the the only plain one in the family, Austin writes, who had neither genius nor taste. I always feel sorry for Mary. Mary. (laughs) She's the blue stocker. She absolutely is. But Lizzie's, the sister that she's closest to, is her older sister, Jane. 
And what's she like as a character? Jane is the most amiable person (laughs) who's ever lived. So she... Uh, is kind and thoughtful, always thinks the best of other people. If somebody's having problems or they've got a bad reputation, she always thinks, oh, there must be a reason for that, there must be reasons for the the way that they're behaving. But actually, she often turns out to be right. Mm. And it's Lizzie who's been too quick to judge. Mm. Now, Monica, we said your latest novel... Love Marriage came out in 2022. It's an absolutely brilliant novel. I so enjoyed it. And you've said that Love Marriage owes a debt to Austen. In in what way does it owe that debt? Austen writes endlessly about engagements and marriages, and that's what drives her plots. And we're just as concerned today with relationships and marriages as we ever were. It's still central to the human experience. And although Austen's gaze is very, in some ways, limited, it's a domestic gaze, she still shows us an awful lot about society at the time, how power works, how money works. She's very precise about money, um, position of women... And now we're in a totally different society and culture. It's a multicultural landscape. Women go out to work and so on. But I do still think that the ways that custom and ritual and family expectations operate around an expectation of marriage, the families coming together, still is a really good lens for looking at society. Definitely. And what I love is... uh you know, in some ways, Love Marriage is a reversal of the kind of Jane Austen model because all of her novels end with an engagement. But Love Marriage begins with an engagement. And, yeah. and then from that point, you realise that actually this relationship is increasingly complicated. Yes, well, I started with the engagement because I wanted to get the two families together as soon as possible. Mm. So um, Yasmin, who's the protagonist, is a junior doctor. She's from a British Indian family. Um, and she's going to marry Joe, who's a fellow doctor, but he comes from a very posh, white family. His mother is Harriet, this North London liberal lovey who lives in Primrose Hill, a public intellectual. It was a bit of a tongue twister. And as well as all the sort of cultural anxieties that Yasmin is experiencing about, or oh, is Ma, is my mum going to turn up with... Tupperware filled with lots of strange foods. Um, there's also a class anxiety yeah, as well. Right. There are fascinating parallels to draw, but it's an absolutely modern, topical novel, as you say, in the, today's multicultural society. It's a, it's a wonderful novel. I really recommend it to listeners. Thank you. Mr Darcy soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mien and the report, which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance, of his having 10,000 a year. So we're stepping out of the drawing room into a little hall with some uh, Regency costumes on, on dummies, and now we're stepping into the dining room, which again has incredible wallpaper, this bright green foliage covering the walls, Bright sunshine coming in through the window now and in the centre of the room, laid for breakfast. And um, 
Oh, and look, in the corner here is Jane Austen's original little writing table. It's a small circular table on three feet. And gosh, it's, a, it's about the size of a small tea tray, isn't it, Monica? You could sit at that table and it's about the space for one or two sheets of paper and a little quill. I would get a very bad back if I had to write at that table, but it's, very, it's a beautiful table, actually. How amazing to think that these novels all started on that surface. So how did Austen write her novels in this house? What she does is she takes a large sheet of letter paper and folds it in half and then in half again and layers those up to make booklets. And that's what she writes in. So what's so fascinating about Austen's work is she is writing books from the word go. She's not just writing. She's not just taking an A4 pad like we do today or a laptop and writing out. She is writing books. She first wrote a draft of Pride and Prejudice, which was called First Impressions Mm -hmm. in 1796, I believe, when she was about 20, the same age as Elizabeth, roughly, in the novel. But by the time Pride and Prejudice was published in 1813, Austen was 37, almost old enough to be Elizabeth's mother. You know, it's a different... Almost a generation has passed in the gestation of this novel. It's really fascinating to think how Austen, at different ages saw the book she was writing. Yes, I and mean, sadly we have no first uh, draft of First Impressions is, is lost. We don't know quite what that novel looked like and we don't really know quite how much changed between the two drafts. I always imagine that Pride and Prejudice contains both like the liveliness and playfulness and rebelliousness of the 22-year-old combined with some of the worldly wisdom of... Yeah, more or less she would have been called a middle-aged woman at the time that Pride and Prejudice came out. Do you think that's reasonable? I think you're seeing both. You think you're seeing both. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating, again, with the irony about these women being on the show, she knows. She she knows there's life if you don't marry at 27. (coughs) She knows there are other choices if you're lucky enough to be able to to follow them. Um, But yes, absolutely, you've got both this dancing, flirting Austin that is... Mm. out every night to balls and when she's in her early 20s and then a more mature woman who is absolutely focused on her craft and on her work and on her writing. But she wrote in quite a secretive way, is that right? Well, we're not sure about this. So this is so much of mythos of Austen Mm. is formed by one of her first biographers who was her nephew, James Edward Austen Lee. Again, he was writing in the 1870s, which was a hugely different time, particularly for women, particularly for expectations of how women could behave than the 1810s when Austen was writing and living. And I don't buy that Mm. because Austen's father wrote letters to publishers to get her published. Mm. The entire family were aware that she was writing in her work. And this isn't a very big house. His story is that she kept her occupation secret from servants and visitors, and it just seems impossible, doesn't it? It seems impossible. This is a household that worked closely together. One of the reasons that we know this is Austen's writing table is because the the villagers would walk past and see her writing at it. Wow. So it's not a village. It's not that (laughs) secret. She did keep her writing secret to a sense, So in 1813, January 1813, when she received her author's copy of Pride and Prejudice, which she so 
beautifully and famously calls her darling child that she's received from London. They invite their friend Miss Ben, who lived in one of the thatched cottages just over on the other side of Winchester Road, over for dinner. And after dinner, in the drawing room, they read aloud the first volume wow. of Pride and Prejudice to Miss Ben. But they do not say that she is the author. How amazing for the neighbour, Miss Ben, to be the very first audience very for first Pride audience. and Prejudice. Very first How audience. How fantastic. Well, Monica, while we're here, at the very beginning of the novel, we're introduced to two key male characters, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Mr. Bingley, who rents uh, a house not far from Longbourn, and his great friend, Mr. Darcy. So can you introduce us to Bingley and Darcy? What, what, what are they like? Well, Bingley is the single man in possession of a fortune who must be in want of a wife. He's the man who... Mrs. Bennett is all in a tiz about when the book opens, trying to persuade Mr. Bennett to go and pay a visit. He is handsome, he is just as amiable as Jane. Austen writes of him that Darcy, his friend, likes him for the easiness, openness, ductility of his temper. So he's he's very tractable, and that's... Also a fault of his. Right, as we'll discover later in the novel, yes. And what about Darcy, his friend who they meet at the local ball they go to? (laughs) Darcy, you know, is going to be the love interest almost immediately when he ignores our heroine, (laughs) Lizzie, at the assembly room uh, dance when Bingley says, you know, you you should be dancing with the young ladies and suggests Lizzie... Uh, Darcy looks round and declares her tolerable looking, but not worth standing up for. So he's haughty, he's proud, he's got 10,000 a year, um, which makes him the object of every mother who wants to get their daughters married off. But he's quickly written off in the locality as being too arrogant and too proud. And although he's rather the strong, silent type. You know, he's a man of action and few words. He's also the only other character, perhaps apart from Mr Bennett, with whom Lizzie can actually have banter, what we would call today banter, or who appreciates the quick-wittedness of Lizzie's conversation. So he might not respond... Uh, in lots of words, but he'll give a little smile. Mm. And you couldn't imagine Bingley, for instance, doing that. Bingley would be totally baffled, yeah. you know, by what half of what Lizzie is saying because she's so arch and she's so quick and she's so sort of um, cognizant of all of the, the ways that society is hemming them in Mm. and she laughs at it so much in covert ways and you know somebody like Bingley wouldn't get it at all but Darcy actually does Mm. yeah that's so true isn't it and you've said Monica that one of the things you admire in Austen is her precision when she writes about money and class and you've already pointed out that in love marriage that's one of the elements you were interested in how does class complicate the relationship between Darcy and Elizabeth Oh, immensely. It's it's at the heart of it, isn't it? So when Darcy proposes the first time around, I mean, he can barely get his words out. He's in such an agony uh, because 
he is lowering himself to ask for Lizzie's hand in marriage. Lizzie's father is landed gentry, or he's a landowner, he's a gentleman. Yeah. Yes. Um, but her uncles, I mean, one of them is in trade. Yes, Mr. Gardner yes. Her, is in her mother's trade, brother is in trade, yes. Which is just, you know, beyond, it's barely tolerable to Darcy. I mean, that that is the heart of the book, really. But he speaks about it in the most kind of brutal terms, doesn't he? He talks about it being a degradation to be proposing to Lizzie and... Um, well, um, when Darcy proposes for that first time, Austen's dialogue is so good. You can read the characters so well through their words. I mean, you wouldn't mistake one character for another just with the, the, the dialogue that they speak. And when he proposes, he says, in vain have I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. Um, he had sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation, of family obstacles which judgment has always opposed to inclination. And then Elizabeth makes this incredible jujitsu move. Right. She uses all of that arrogance against him by saying, you are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of your declaration affected me in any other way than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, which is just superb as a repost. Completely. It's so cool and so cutting. And it really sticks with Darcy, doesn't it? That, that more gentleman-like manner really yes. rankles with him. He can't... It's, it's a moment the scales fall from his eyes. He's standing on his honour. He's too much of a gentleman to propose to her without qualms. No, no, no. He's not enough of a gentleman. So the, the thing about her writing, I always feel, is that there... And especially in Pride and Prejudice, is it's like this corseted rage mm. you know it's all very polite it's all very genteel but I can feel the absolute rage that she has I mean how dare he yes. speak yes. about Elizabeth as not being worthy my heroine Elizabeth as not being worthy simply because one of her uncles is in trade simply because her mother is a bit of a, a foolish and in inverted commas woman you can also sense it when elizabeth goes off for a walk she's castigated by bingley's sister and again it's that sense of wanting to cast off all these restraints yes you know yes. and it just courses under the surface constantly so again this sense of just barely perceptible blink and you miss it anger about the social order I think is one of the things that's always attracted me to Austen as a writer. It's so brilliant. And, and, it, and for those who haven't read Austen, I think the impression you can get is of these sort of, you know, pretty scenes and, and Regency costumes. And, and actually, the, as you say, the, the anger, the, the passion, the wit of the novels is just shines through from, in every page, doesn't it? This is one of the reasons why we had to take some of the early family biographies with a very, very, very big pinch of salt, because they present Austen as a retired, quiet woman who is almost in retreat from the world, who's very gentle. This is not the author that we see. This is not the narrator's voice we see. This is not the woman that we see in the letters. They almost, they present this woman as somebody who wrote accidentally, and one of the 
biggest things that I personally, oh, she wrote because she didn't get married. Absolutely not. <laughs> she didn't get married so she could write. Right. And there is, in every one of these novels, they are charged with anger. They are charged with a sense of injustice. Every single one of her heroines, the novels open with their family home at risk. Emma is a slight exception, but the others and the girls have to find their own way. And they have to fight through the woods and the intricacies and the dangers of the wider world. We consistently choose to set Austen's novels in this prettified regency as a choice. She was writing for her own modern era and it was dark and it was frightening. And the characters that she writes, they live on a little gilded precipice. And if you fell off, which it was very easy to do, life was pretty bleak mm. and pretty hard. But there is... But the jeopardy is there, isn't the it? The jeopardy is there and it's real. Right, we're heading up the staircase so extraordinary to think of Austin yeah. using this very space let's head into the door labeled Jane's bedroom here we are a little room at the back of the house with a with a fireplace a small curtained bed and a single window looking out onto the courtyard with a little cupboard in the corner with a little wash basin. And um, it's actually a very comfortable-looking, cosy room, isn't it? Now, we've talked about Darcy and his proposal to Elizabeth. Monica, there are a couple of other love interests for Lizzie in this novel, aren't there? Can you introduce us first to Mr Wickham, who, who piques her interest, and then to Mr Collins? So Mr Wickham is a member of the militia that becomes stationed locally. Strangers are always an element of danger, I would say, in Austin. And excitement. And excitement. I mean, great excitement for the younger girls okay. that um, all these soldiers have been stationed. And Mr Wickham is you know, handsome and debonair. He's uh, described as he had all the best part of beauty, a fine countenance, a good figure and a very pleasing address. She, that's Elizabeth, parted from him, convinced that whether married or single, he must always be her model of the amiable and the pleasing. So Elizabeth does for a short time imagine that she might be a little bit in love with him, but she is not at all bothered when he moves his affections to a Miss King who actually has a fortune, whereas Lizzie doesn't. So she she knocks that on the head. Um, What's interesting about her perceptions of Mr Wickham is that after she receives the letter from Darcy explaining um, their past together and why that he looks on Mr Wickham with such disgust, Lizzie then has to think back like a detective mm. over all of those social interactions in which she found him so charming and plausible and she sees the things that she didn't catch the first time around. And it's really fascinating because all of the... Um, that the modes of expression in polite genteel society and the ways of reading people become 
really, really important because if you get it wrong, you can mess up badly. So the ways that language are uh, sort of distorted and refracted through the social niceties of the time is another subject that Austen is very, very acute Mm. on. And you can see where that first working title, First Impressions, comes from, because she gets the wrong first impression, doesn't she? She does. Now, Mr. Collins is one of the greatest (laughs) characters in this novel, I think. He's a cousin of uh, the Bennets, who comes to visit. And and tell us about him. Mr. Collins, well, let's do it in um, Austen's words. He was a tall, heavy-looking young man of five and twenty. His air was grave and stately, and his manners were formal. He is the heir to the Bennett estate because it's been entailed through the male line. This is why the girls are in jeopardy, because Mr and Mrs Bennett haven't produced a son. So along comes Mr Collins and he's going to do the right thing by the family by marrying one of the, the daughters. And it's quite funny, isn't it, because he settles on Jane initially, and then um, even though she hasn't had a proposal from Mr Bingley, Mrs Bennet's like, I think we're expecting her yes, to receive a proposal. Yes. So he just shifts to Elizabeth. He shifts to Elizabeth, and he proposes within two or three days, <laughs> and then he cannot believe that she is turning him down. And the more she tries to impress on him and clarify that the, her refusal is genuine, the more he believes that, no, 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 this is just the proper, <laughs> modest way for a young gentlewoman to receive the first proposal. And so he comes across as a ridiculous, self-important, conceited character, which he is, and at the same time, he is not entirely stupid because it is an extraordinary thing that Elizabeth is doing. It is hard for him to believe that in her position she would make that choice. She cannot possibly be doing that. That's the only way of interpreting her insane action is as the actions of a very modest young woman. (laughs) It's such a funny scene because she keeps saying, I cannot say it more clearly, I do not want to marry you. He says, ah, yes, another of your womanly wiles. It's, It's so funny. Now, Lizzie, we've talked a little bit already about Austen and her own prospects of marriage, but did she ever consider marriage herself? She did, and it's a really lovely story. Um, and we, again, we're not quite sure where it's coming. It's part of the family stories that comes down. And in the early years of the 19th century, so I think it's in 1803, she is staying at some family friends called the Big Withers, and she's very close with the sisters of the household. And one night, they're at a ball, and the son of the house, Harris Big Wither, proposes. She says yes, and then she wakes up in the morning, and she changes her mind. And she and her sister Cassandra call up their brother James, um, who comes to get them, and they don't just go to Steventon, Jane and Cassandra get James to take them all the way back to Bath to get as far away as possible. But we never see this in Austen's words. There aren't letters from this time. We don't really see this reflected in the novels. So we don't really know too much about either side, why she said yes, or again, why she said no. There are lots of people who've written plays or Mm. stories about this, but we can't 
engage with it too deeply. But what is important is that she turned down that security. Menidown was an estate. She would have been the lady of the manor. She would have had that security and she did turn it down. Interestingly, she was also 27 at the time, which is that key age in so many of the novels. But it is a bit of a it is a bit of mystery as to he was younger than her. Hmm. Uh, he was. It sounds like a little bit of a Mr. Collins. I mean, he was large and plain and yes. tactless. Yeah. Apparently, he stuttered. Yes, he wasn't. Um, I don't think he was even a verging on the shelf girl's dream, hmm. let alone a young girl's dream. And it is interesting that you see this in Lizzie. Very early on, she says, only the deepest love would tempt me into mm. matrimony. Mm. So there is a great romanticism with a capital R about Lizzie. And perhaps that is seeing a reference in, in Jane. Because this was a time when marriage was dangerous. It wasn't straightforward. By the time Austen, she'd lost four of her sisters-in-law in childbirth. And the other thing about this time is when you married as a woman you ceased to exist as your own independent legal identity your legal identity was entirely merged or submerged within your husband so if she wanted to continue to write married women could not sign their name to a contract they could not own property in their own right when they were widows they could but that sense of wanting to be a writer and have that control over herself and her mind and her destiny in marriage would have been harder. Mm. Well, it reminds me of that other great um, minor character in the novel, but who really seems so crucial on rereading it, Elizabeth's great friend Charlotte Lucas, Mm. who is 27 in the novel, that age. And, of course, the kind of climax of the first volume of Pride and Prejudice is Charlotte Lucas's acceptance of Mr Collins's proposal. They get engaged. And... Elizabeth is is kind of flabbergasted at this, that the man she turned down, this awful man has been accepted by her friend. But of course, from Charlotte's point of view, she's doing something very practical, isn't she? She is. I mean, Elizabeth says that Charlotte has sacrificed every feeling to worldly advantage. And that's Elizabeth's perspective. And she's horrified, as you say. But Austen describes it as preservative from want Mm. and it's actually a very astute observation of economic determinants driving social action I mean Charlotte has made a a reasonable choice absolutely and you've written in a Guardian article in the past how Austin lays bare the institution of marriage as an exchange commodity system yet she treats that subject with a great deal of subtle inflection and I feel like there's nowhere whether this is more the case, where you really feel like Charlotte is is doing this not for love but for very practical purposes. But she's presented in such a sympathetic way by Austin, isn't she? You can see why she's doing it. Well, let's move on to one last spot in Jane Austen's house before we leave. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way 
so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So we've just walked along the corridor and into another room on the first floor of the house, into a wonderful, very serendipitous exhibition of Pride and Prejudice with some wonderful additions spread out around the room, some um, pieces from various different adaptations. And I'm looking here in the corner at the very first edition of Pride and Prejudice. There it is in three volumes, the Thomas Edgerton edition, which famously has on the title page Pride and Prejudice by the author of Sense and Sensibility. So, Lizzie, how did Austin come to be published in the first place? So her brother Henry was very, very supportive of this. Henry is one of the great unsung heroes of Austin history. He was based in London. He was involved with the military. He was a banker for the military. And he enabled Austin to make these contacts. Thomas Edgerton was actually a military publisher at the time, so through Henry they had these had them published. And she sold the copyright to Pride and Prejudice for £110, which doesn't sound like a lot, but the average wage at the time was £23 a year. So we own four first editions at the house, and this one is a particularly special one. This is the Godmersham edition, so this was the property of Jane's brother, Edward, and it was actually it was sent down very soon after publication to Edward's house in Kent, and these were sold, and they were bought by an American collector called Charles Beecher Hogan, who donated them to the museum uh, in the 1970s. Well, and what this room also really demonstrates well is, is the power of... Austin on screen, Absolutely. right? The adaptations yes. of Jane Austen are, are so popular, and, and Pride and Prejudice has had so many wonderful adaptations. Mm. The very first was in 1940, a film starring Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson. But I think probably the one that's fixed in most people's uh, memories is that 1995 BBC miniseries, which I can see playing on a screen uh, nearby, starring Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth. Monica, do you remember watching that uh, series? I was totally glued to it, like the rest of the nation. And especially, who could forget, Colin Firth and the wet shirt. I mean, that... Don't remember that scene in the book. No, it's not in the book. <laughs> it's, it's Andrew Davis adapted it, and it, yeah, but that's a wonderful touch, isn't it? Having him come out of the lake at Pemberley in a dripping white shirt. And, of course, since then, there's been the 2004 film Bride and Prejudice by Gurinder Charter, the 2005 Joe Wright adaptation with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. It's an evergreen novel, isn't it? People love seeing it transferred onto the screen. I'm sure we're going to see it time and time and time again. Yes, and, you know, but it it will change in its inflection and its tone and reach different generations. So... 
you know, what's not to like. Mm, completely. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for showing us around this beautiful house, this extraordinary museum. It's been a real pleasure meeting you and, and seeing around the house. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a joy to share it with you. So we've just stepped out of Jane Austen's house and we're walking through the village of Chawton past some really beautiful thatched cottages. Look at this one, Monica. It's got kind of thatched geese on top of the, on top <laughs> I, of the I thought house. they were real for a, one moment. <laughs> yes. It's, it's absolutely, it's just uh, bucolic, isn't it? It's it gorgeous. is bucolic. Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of perfect English village. And we're going out for a walk. It's, it's actually a bit of a blustery November day today. But as we walk to our next location, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the way that the characters travel in Pride and Prejudice. The house of Longbourn is one mile away from the town of Meryton, and that seems to be almost the limit of what's socially acceptable for the girls to walk out. That's a respectable distance for the girls to walk. And the younger girls especially love walking into Meryton to, you know, to visit the shops. But when Elizabeth walks to Netherfield, where Mr Bingley lives, when Jane is there and, and laid up ill, that's just three miles, but that's considered sort of a minor scandal, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> by Miss Bingley. Yes, right. <laughs> um, she's got very specific views on what a proper lady should do. And, and she's got um, flushed cheeks and her hair's in disarray. And but, but, of course, it makes her all the more attractive right. to a certain gentleman. Well, that's um, right. There's that great line, isn't there, where Mr Darcy's divided between admiration of the brilliancy which exercise had given to her complexion and doubt as to the occasions justifying her coming so far alone. Exactly. He doesn't (laughs) give a damn that she's got mud on her petticoats. (laughs) (laughs) And in the novel, it's almost as if Lizzie ventures further and further afield. It's as if she's kind of discovering her liberty over the course of the novel because she she walks to Netherfield she she later goes on a journey to Kent to visit her friend Charlotte after she's married Mr Collins and then in a really crucial central passage of the book she goes on a tour of Derbyshire with her relations the gardeners and of course it's while she's in Derbyshire that they realize that they're close to Pemberley the great house that's owned by Mr. Darcy. And in a way, the climax of the second of the three volumes of Pride and Prejudice is their decision to go and visit Pemberley while they're on this tour. Well, she only agrees to go and visit when she assures herself through various bits of detective work, Mm -hmm. talking to the chambermaid at the the lodgings that they're at, that Mr Darcy absolutely will not be in residence. So she reluctantly, half reluctantly, half eagerly, goes on this tour with her uncle and aunt. And Pemberley is a very impressive, stately home. It's got a beautiful park and gardens. And Elizabeth later on jokes... <laughs> with her elder sister Jane, that her first blush of love can be attributed to 
her first seeing the gardens at, at Pemberley. <laughs> yes, I love that line. It's, it's so funny. It's, it's, it is a joke, but it's also uh, perhaps not so much of a joke. Well, we're not in Derbyshire at the moment, but we are approaching a large house. So let's walk on a little bit and find a stand-in for Pemberley today. It was a large, handsome stone building standing well on rising ground and backed by a ridge of high woody hills. And in front, a stream of some natural importance was swelled into greater, but without any artificial appearance. Its banks were neither formal nor falsely adorned. Elizabeth was delighted. She had never seen a place for which nature had done more or where natural beauty had been so little counteracted by an awkward taste. They were all of them warm in their admiration, and at that moment she felt that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. Oh, wow, so look, we've just walked along the road a little bit and we've come to the end of a really spectacular sweeping drive heading up to the large front of Chawton House. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know, is it Jacobean house with a mixture of stone and flint frontage and a red brick above that? It's a really dramatic prospect. And over to the right, there's a little church with the bells going, I think rather appropriately for the subject of our episode. I think there might be a wedding going on inside the church. Hello. I'm Henry, very nice to meet you. This is Monica, Katie, director of Shorten House. This is MJ. Well, we've just come into Chawton House and walked through some really spectacular wood-panelled corridors into a wonderful dining room, and I can still hear those church bells going outside. It's a pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Dr. Kim Simpson, who is deputy director here at Chawton House. Kim, welcome. Thank you for Thank you very much for having me. It's in. lovely to welcome you here. Well, Chawton House is it's both a historic house, but it's also a centre for researching early women writers, right? So, Kim, can you describe the house to us and, and what's its connection to Jane Austen? Yes, uh, of course. So the house is an Elizabethan manor house, which was built in the 1580s. And it's been in a family called the Knight family for about 450 years. Wow. It's passed generation to generation of the Knight family. But at some stages during that, it has passed to distant relatives or distant cousins. And one such passing was to Jane Austen's very lucky brother, Edward, <laughs> Uh, who, as a third son, had absolutely no business becoming as wealthy as he did. Uh, but he was very lucky because Thomas Knight and Catherine Knight chose him to be their heir. So they first met him whilst they were on their honeymoon uh, and they were touring their different estates. They owned Steventon, where Jane Austen's father was the rector. Mm. And so they met Edward there when he was 12 or 13. They liked him very, very much. And he used to go and stay with them during uh, his summer holidays. They eventually um, decided, after they realised that they wouldn't have any children, that he would be their heir. And then they sent him off on his grand tour, so you can see his uh, portrait hanging oh, yes. here in the dining room. There he is. Uh, and this is very lucky Edward, uh, resplendent in his yellow trousers on his grand tour. Just to describe it, there's a full-length portrait here on the wall of a powdered Edward in some extremely dashing and very tight yellow trousers. <laughs> yeah. So Edward went off on his grand tour 
his sort of adopted father dies in 1794, and then four years later, his wife Catherine hands over the estates that she has to Edward. And so Edward inherits Chawton, but he also inherits Godmersham as well, which is an estate over in Kent. And he has a growing family. He ends up having 11 children. So Godmersham is even larger than Chawton House, um, and he decides that he's going to move in there. So he rents Chawton House out to friends, family members. Uh, Francis, their younger military brother, lives here periodically. And he also comes back to stay here. Um, Jane Austen goes to visit him at Godmersham as well. So she spends about 10 months there in total. She writes about spending time in the library. And the library that she consulted there, we actually have on site here now. So we have the Knight family collection of books. Um, In 1809, Edward uh, gave Jane Austen the cottage in Chawton Village, uh, which I believe you've been to this morning. And so she moved in there, and that's where she edits and publishes uh, her novels from. And she's very happy there, so she writes about coming up to Chawton House. She says, I dawdled away a couple of hours very comfortably in the gardens. How amazing to think of her here. And, Mm. and, And I think you said that this dining table is an original piece of furniture? Absolutely. So the dining table that you can see here is one of the only original pieces of furniture that we still have in the house um, and it is the dining table that Jane Austen would have sat at wow. so when we have very big Jane Austen fans come here they like to sit at every place around the table so that they can stay <laughs> be certain that they sat where she did how amazing yeah and and Chawton House is also a centre for researching early women writers that's correct yes yeah. so um In the 1980s, the house was still in Knight family hands and is still, the freehold is still owned by the Knight family, but it had fallen into disrepair. And so uh, it nearly became a golf course. uh, And instead, an American entrepreneur uh, and philanthropist called Sandy Lerner bought the lease uh, and set up the charity Chawton House Library. And initially it was set up to be a research centre for women's writing. So she had an amazing collection of women's writing from about 1660 to about 1860, which she moved into the charity's name. And that forms the basis of our women's writing collection that we have here today. So we're still a functioning academic research library, but in the last few years we've also kind of opened out uh, and become a kind of historic house for the public to visit as well. So we've undergone a lot of change in the last few years. Fascinating place. Now, Monica, we've just been talking about Elizabeth's visit to Pemberley. Why is that visit in Pride and Prejudice, why is that visit to Pemberley so crucial to the novel? Oh, for myriad reasons. Well, it's where she encounters Darcy again, for Mm -hmm. one thing. But before those two stumble upon each other, they're given a tour of the house by a servant, Mrs Reynolds, who's known Darcy since he was a boy, and she says he was the most lovely, kindest, sweetest boy, and, you know, the the man is as the boy was. Mm. Um, She gives him a really good recommendation, and Austen says... What praise is more valuable than the praise of an intelligent servant? (laughs) So that's a sort of turning point for Lizzie in re-evaluating her judgment of Darcy. It's also really important because the gardeners, although Mr Gardner is in trade... They're actually the respectable side of yes. the family. They're, and they're intelligent and sensible. Yeah, they're the sensible. They don't embarrass her mm. in the way that her own parents mm. embarrass her. So she's glad for Darcy to meet relatives of hers that she's not embarrassed that about. That she's not ashamed of, yes. And as you say, she's the sort of physically seeing him again is important, isn't it? I think it's, as we said, the, the wet shirt scene is not in the novel, but I think it's no coincidence that Andrew Davis thought he needed to do something 
different with that meeting because she's been thinking so much about Darcy since that proposal which went so badly that the kind of physicality of seeing being in the same space as him again mm. does have a big effect on her, doesn't it's it? It's very discombobulating mm. and she doesn't really know what she feels mm. at that time. She thinks one thing, she thinks another thing. I mean, she says after she's read his letter that explains all about Wickham, or she'd never really known herself until this point. But actually, she still doesn't know her own mind. Mm. She's still in a state of confusion. We, the reader, can see what she can't at that moment. And there's a moment later when Darcy says that it was that moment where he realised how he'd truly felt. Mm. So, yes, it's a moment of realisation for both of them, isn't it? Well, Kim, it's so wonderful to see inside this uh, dining room. Let's move on to another room in the house to continue our conversation. Okay. This is a wonderful room. So we've just stepped into an extraordinary room, a room, a library room lined with bookshelves from the floor to the ceiling with some fantastic-looking spines on the shelves. Kim, what are we looking at here? So um, you'll find that this library is actually rather unusual because all of the books on the shelves that you can see are written by women or they pertain to women's lives. And this is a fraction of our women's writing collection that I was telling you about um, a little bit earlier on. A lot of the people who come to Chawton House have the impression that women before Austin didn't write at all or if they did write that they were somehow um, strangled in their writing or had to write anonymously. And I think this material legacy kind of proves otherwise and they were not just writing novels and poems and plays but also works of non-fiction as well so they have conduct books telling people how to behave they have medicinal works uh, recipe books which were very lucrative um, books on botany and on political philosophy history travel so they are really writing in all sorts of different genres they're incredibly versatile they're very professional um, they are well paid and well thought of um, and these are Austin's literary grandmothers and her sisters um, and people who she read and enjoyed as well. Fabulous. It's extraordinary to see and, and, and just such a physical representation of that huge body of work as well, isn't it? Mm. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about the, the literary and political context into which Austen was writing. So Austen starts writing at a moment where there are some very famous women writers. Um, she, in Northanger Abbey, uh, writes a very famous defence of the novel uh, in which she names some of the women writers who she found very inspirational. So uh, Frances Burney, for one, um, we have a first edition of Frances Burney's Camilla on display as part of our current exhibition. And you can see Jane Austen's name in the subscription lists for that. Wow. Uh, so she liked it enough to, um, to buy it. It is a five-volume, bit of a trek of a novel, but Austen seemed to enjoy it. Um, and she also enjoyed uh, reading Mariah Edgeworth as well. We know that she enjoyed reading Gothic uh, literature because Northanger Abbey is a Gothic parody, but it's a very fond and gentle one. So she um, certainly read Anne Radcliffe's Mysteries of Adolfo. Jane Austen in her lifetime was not hugely well known, but she is writing in a time where there are some women writers who are earning phenomenal amounts of money for the work that they're doing. So Camilla, for example, by Frances Burney earned uh, £1,000 from the subscription list. And to put that into context, um, Pride and Prejudice got Jane Austen £110. Frankenstein got Mary Shelley £28, which I always (laughs) think is astonishing, and was turned down by John Murray, um, who was Jane Austen's publisher. So um, she's writing in a kind of literary marketplace that's kind of thriving, actually, um, at the time, and thriving with women writers who are dominating, um, particularly in the novel. 
And then, of course, in the backdrop of her novels, you can also see the kind of traces of the kind of great events of the day. So, um, you know, the militia kind of gallivanting about the countryside and actually the marriage market as well that she's writing about. There are more women than men at this time. Yes, because because of the Napoleonic Wars. Wars. So I think she's kind of dealing with the impact of these kind of greater political things which are going on in the background of Regency Mm. society. And they're always there kind of underneath the surface. Yes, she's often described as as an author who's, who's not engaged with context but actually she absolutely is isn't she it's always there in the background I think the domestic is political um, and it's foolish to kind of think otherwise really yeah well Kim what an extraordinary room let's move on to one final location uh, for our episode today gosh we're just walking up an incredible shallow staircase into a large upper chamber and heading on through into an exhibition room. So, Kim, what, what are we looking at here in this room? Um, so we're upstairs at the moment in our exhibition room, and this is part of an exhibition that I co-curated uh, with our chief exec, Katie Childs, and it's called Treasures of Chawton House. So essentially we've just got the objects out that best tell our story here. So the Knight family history, the Jane Austen connection, and the women's writing collection. So what we're looking at in here are um, some of our first edition Jane Austens. Um, So there's Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. Um, And then some of the items that I was talking about downstairs as well. So this is Frances Burney's Camilla, um, open at the page that you can see um, Austen's name on. There it is, yes. Wow. This is Anne Radcliffe, the famous Gothic novelist's uh, final novel that was published while she was alive. The Italian, which she got £800 for. Uh, and then this is a first edition of a novel called Corinne by an author called Germaine de Stahl, who died a couple of weeks after Austen, but was much, much more famous than Austen um, in her time. So we're thinking here about fame, really. Right, right. Um, and about changing what a fascinating exhibition. Yeah. Well, Monica, just thinking again about love marriage, in some ways the central question of your novel is, is what does that title mean? Right, because Yasmin, the central character, has always been told this story about her parents' love marriage, the story of the well-to-do Calcutta girl and the poor but clever village boy, a true romance. But you finish the novel with the line, life is not simple, and actually there's much more complexity to her parents' relationship than Yasmin ever considered. And That strikes me as another similarity with Pride and Prejudice, because on rereading this book, it made me think, actually, what this book is about is about children deciding to do things differently to their parents. Darcy is the way he is because, as he put it, I was spoilt by my parents, who, though they were good, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing. And Elizabeth... It's much more self-aware, perhaps, but she observes her parents and decides to do something very different, right? Yes. But on Mr Darcy, Mm. I would say I think he is too old to be blaming his parents (laughs) for all of his ills. Speaking as a mother of grown (laughs) children, um, I can confidently say that, you know, it's no use blaming your parents Mm. endlessly. And that gives me a little bit of doubt about the future happiness Mm. of Elizabeth and Mr Darcy 
on early readings, I thought they were going to live happily ever after. Now I'm not so sure. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all that brooding on the past that he does mm. as well. I mean, she may coach him out of it, but he's got a depressive quality, which is very alluring when you read it as an adolescent. It's really not so alluring as a mature woman. I mean, what a pain in the ass <laughs> that would be. As a husband, you're constantly having to jolly him out of his bad moods. I don't know. I, I'm not up for that. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth, you're right. She's very, very fond of her father in particular, but she is aware of his faults mm. as well. And she does mm. decide that she needs to have a very, very different marriage. Mm. I don't think it will be a different not without its complications, but it will be a different marriage than her parents have. Mm. I think, you know, I think your title, Love Marriage, it, it's, there's an irony in it, isn't there, that we have this sort of fairy tale image of a love marriage, but actually what's well, your we, novel we does... Well, we don't have over here this phrase, love marriage. People here don't know what a love marriage means necessarily, and that really came home to me when I did interviews spoke to lots of Indian mm. publications when Love Marriage was published and of course all of those journalists didn't need to read the book to find out what Love Marriage means. Um, in India and the rest of the subcontinent they don't talk about arranged marriage that is just marriage because right. that is the norm and then the abnormal thing is a love marriage so it's labelled whereas here we don't talk about love marriage that's just mm. marriage. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's I see the norm. what you mean. Yes. Yeah. So it's a so it's an inversion. But Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice, that is also what she has. She has mm. a love marriage, which also is a very prudent marriage. Yeah. She manages yes. to combine yes. the two things. <laughs> yes, very, very strategic in some ways. But yes, I think you know, I think what your novel and Pride and Prejudice does is complicate that that kind of fairy tale romance which uh, in a childish way we can imagine a love marriage would be actually every marriage is much more complicated than that well kim thank you so much for showing us around the extraordinary chawton house it's been such a pleasure meeting you today thank you very much for coming up it was a real pleasure to meet you all well we've just stepped outside chawton house and Monica, it's been such a pleasure walking around Chawton with you today and visiting the places that Jane Austen knew. To finish, as a, as a final question, you've said that although Austen is one of England's most enduringly popular authors, you still think that in some ways she's underrated. Why is that, and, and how highly do you think she should be rated? Well, Virginia Woolf said that of all great writers, she is the most difficult to catch in the act of greatness. And what she meant was that her novels don't rely on fancy sentences, showy set pieces. And I think that's one of the reasons she's still underrated, because the greatness reveals itself in the, you know, all the fine detail and patterning in her novels which requires a really close attention from the reader to catch. And I think another reason she's underrated is perversely because she's so popular. Mm. Because of all the bustles and bonnets and TV adaptations and wet shirts. But Austen is one of the great 
innovators in literature and her achievement and her legacy can hardly be overstated. You know, it, it is immense. Wonderful. Well, what a perfect place to wrap up today's episode. Monica, thank you so much for joining us on the road. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Many thanks to Monica Alley, to Lizzie Dunford and the Jane Austen's House Museum, to Kim Simpson and Chawton House, to Penguin Audio for the clips of Indira Varma reading from Pride and Prejudice, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. In that famous scene from the 1995 BBC adaptation, when Colin Firth emerges from the lake at Pemberley in a dripping white shirt, he was never actually in the lake. The producers were worried he might contract Viles disease from rat urine in the water, so a stuntman did all the swimming. So perhaps it's appropriate that in 2010, researchers at the University of Liverpool took inspiration from Pride and Prejudice when they discovered a new pheromone in male mouse urine. When a female mouse detects this specific pheromone they discovered, she triples the amount of time she spends with that particular male. These romantic researchers took their inspiration from Jane Austen when they called the pheromone Darcy, after Mr. Darcy. <laughs>